0: I needed to do some unfinished work in myself, and I needed to live more before I could really speak into someone else's life. I wasn't ready. I thought I was, but looking back, I couldn't have done this the way I do it now. There wasn't a chance.
1: Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast. Focused on helping you reinvent your career. My name is Joseph Liu, and I'm here to help you gain the clarity, confidence, and courage to overcome the challenges of making changes to your career so you can do more meaningful work and enjoy your professional life. In each episode, I feature people who have stepped off the beaten path to reinvent their careers. We talk through their unique personal journeys, the challenges they overcame, and the lessons they learned along the way to help you understand what it takes to relaunch your own career. Today my guest is going to explain how she went from being a magazine editor to a psychotherapist. We'll discuss the challenges of deciding where to take your career when you have multiple interests and the distinction between identifying versus pursuing your passion. Afterwards, during today's Mental Fuel, I'll explain how being patient is a critical component of making any major career transition. Today, I'm speaking with Kessler Bickford, who's a psychotherapist running her own private practice specializing in treating patients struggling with anxiety using a modality called Intensive Short-Term Dynamic Psychotherapy. However, she began her career working for over a decade as an editor for Chesapeake Life Magazine which are two jobs she'll go on to explain aren't as different as they may seem on the surface. Now, Kessler and I have talked about her coming onto the show for quite some time, and full disclosure, Kessler used to actually be a private client of mine way back in 2016 when she was in the midst of building her own independent psychotherapy practice, which you'll hear more about during our conversation. Although I was her personal branding coach at the time, I always remember coming out of each of our sessions having learned something myself from Kessler. So I thought she could share her insightful perspectives about career transitions with you too. You can get all the show notes from today's conversation at careerrelaunch.net slash 89. Kessler spoke with me from Easton, Maryland. Hello, Kessler. It is good to talk with you again. Welcome to the Career Relaunch Podcast. It is great to have you on the show.
0: Thank you, Joseph. It's really fun to do this.
1: First of all, before we get started, how's everything going with you? Are you doing okay?
0: Yeah, life is good. Being a parent just like supersedes everything because (laughs) your happiness is like contingent on how your child is doing.
1: I should probably say that you and I haven't spoken in a while. So this is actually going to be a little bit of a catch up for you and I also. And I was wondering if we could just start by getting a sense of what's been keeping you busy right now in both your professional life and also your personal life.
0: I am a wife and I am a mother of a 10 year old boy, as well as a psychotherapist. So all that is Always moving at the speed of light and at the same time, so it's the balancing act it's you know settling into parenting and then it's settling into my professional life and there's a lot of sort of stop and start there
1: I'll bet I am also a parent, and I can understand how it's really hard to have any stretch of time to do anything continuously let's take those one at a time so you mentioned you're a psychotherapist can you just give a snapshot of what you do, what you focus on, and what your approach is.
0: With your help, I found my branding, my specialty is treating anxiety. And um, that is something I've studied extensively and have certification in. And so many other issues connect with anxiety. So while I'm helping people with anxiety, I'm also helping them with, you know, emotional issues and other things like that.
1: Just so... We're all kind of on the same page. When you use the term anxiety in a clinical sense, can you just explain in layperson's terms, what exactly do you mean by that? What are the types of people who you might typically see in your practice?
0: There are four different really levels of anxiety and they're very different. And some anxiety might not bother you. But as anxiety gets higher and higher and creeps up to sort of the second, third and fourth level, it becomes harder to manage and certainly creates more sort of physical disruptions in your body and disruptions in your life. And it really becomes pretty serious. So I'm helping people learn how to regulate anxiety that goes to a point where it's so high, it's affecting the cognitive ability as well as sort of creating a lot of physical symptoms too.
1: We will probably get into more details into how you became a a psychotherapist as we go along in this conversation, but I also want to touch on the family life piece of it because as you mentioned, you are a mother and that obviously plays into the balance between work and the rest of your life. Could you just give a snapshot of how you balance the two and how much one affects the other?
0: it's kind of miraculous. <laughs> I'm not sure, you know, sometimes how how I made a day go by when I look back on the day. But because I'm in private practice, I can set my own schedule. And that really allows me to tailor the time I need and carve that out for my son or family things and then move my clients around that. So that's such a blessing of being in private practice or working for yourself is you have that kind of flexibility and can put family first, which is what I do.
1: Before we go back in time to talk about your previous profession, what's it like having a 10 year old son at home?
0: Well, he's in fourth grade and he has just a ton of personality. He's very sweet, but someone once asked me, how's motherhood? And I said, You know, there's nothing like having your own personality used against
1: you. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Because he looks just like my husband, but he has my temperament. I
1: see. I've always thought it must be interesting as someone who is a psychotherapist to think about your children and their temperament and their approach to life. It must obviously influence your perceptions of your child and also inform your approach to parenting. Would you say that's a... fair statement.
0: I think it is fair and that doesn't mean it's a winning approach (laughs) because I'm just human and I'm coming at it with my own fears and projections and you know the tricky thing is is separating yourself from your child and realizing you're two totally different people and how you see something and feel about something is not the way they do and this allows them to have their own experience their own personality separate from your own but that is something that's i think hard for so many parents it's just accepting your child for the personality that they have that's different from yours
1: i can completely relate to that as you know i've got a four coming up on five-year-old daughter and i do catch myself sometimes almost saying something along the lines of well when i was a kid and I just got to stop myself, but I can feel myself. I feel tempted to bring it up, <laughs> but i stop myself. So, yeah. I know you haven't always been a psychotherapist, Kessler, so I'd like to kind of switch gears and go back in time now. Would you mind just telling me what you were up to before you entered the world of therapy? And I understand you spent quite a bit of time as an editor. Can you tell me a little bit about that chapter of your career and then we'll go forward from there?
0: Yes, I was a magazine editor for 12 years. I worked for a regional magazine that covered the Chesapeake regions of Maryland and Virginia and Delaware. And it was a lifestyle magazine. And before that, you know, Mama was a Rolling Stone here. I had a lot of different careers. I was a wrangler on a dude ranch. I was a cleaning lady for a little while. I lived in the Bahamas for a while. I just didn't know where I belonged. I was really lost, but I knew. I didn't wanna settle. I didn't wanna go into the corporate world just to check a box or have a job I didn't love. I knew that if I didn't love it, I was never gonna be able to pull it off. So I just sort of bided my time until my purpose came to me.
1: There are some quite very different roles in there. So you said Wrangler on a dude ranch and then eventually become a magazine editor. How did you go from the former to the latter? And was that move, I'm just kind of reading between the lines here, but was it to try to maybe take a more practical job on paper that kind of felt a little bit more stable or what was the motivation behind going into being a magazine editor?
0: I think I really realized I wanted to be a writer. And I just had this life philosophy that even if you know there's something inside you that you're meant to do, if you touch it too soon... If you touch it when it's not time, you could ruin it. And what I mean by ruin it is if you're not ready and you try it, the danger is you come out with a story that you failed. And so this thing that you knew was inside you to do becomes this horrible story of failure when the truth is, is it just wasn't time. So you've got to wait. For the time to be right. And I think I was always just kind of waiting for it to be revealed to me what I really wanted to do and then wait for the right time because they're different. They're two different things.
1: Were you feeling like editorial work just wasn't doing it for you? Like, how did you know that that wasn't going to be your long term professional calling?
0: Because. When I was in my early 20s, I'd say 22, 23, I got the insight that I wanted to be a therapist. So I went to, and I was like, wonderful, the purpose finally showed up, I can go for it, right? So I went to my pastor at the time, and I said to him, I asked for a meeting with him, and I said, I think my purpose has shown up. And he said, well, wonderful, what is it? And I said, well, as a therapist, he said, well... I would wait. And I said, what? You know, wait, why? And he said, well, you just want to make sure that you're ready for it emotionally in maturity wise. And if you want to make sure it's time. And while at the time I thought, well, the nerve of him to discourage a effervescent, excited young woman, I thought there's some wisdom there. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to put it on the back burner being a therapist, and I'm going to go into the world of writing. And if the urge to become a therapist comes back, if it shows back up after a while, I'll pay attention to it then. But for now, I'm just going to let it kind of germinate. And for 12 years, I was in the magazine world, and it did come back. That feeling to go back and get a degree in therapy and go into that part of me did come back.
1: If you wouldn't mind diving into this concept of jumping into something too early, I think that could be interesting to talk about just because I know you mentioned your pastor had mentioned, hey, don't do this right now. I've actually have been given a similar advice myself when I was thinking about going into coaching one day. I I remember a coach I spoke to, he said, don't do this yet. What do you think is behind these people's comments to dissuade people from jumping into their path of passion to quote unquote early? Like what would be the downside of that?
0: Well, I think everything in life is motive. And I can't speak to what his motive was, but for me, it wasn't a malicious motive. It was a motive of making sure that I was ready. I needed to do some unfinished work in myself. And I needed to live more before I could really speak into someone else's life. And the truth is, the human brain isn't fully formed to you're 24, 25. And I was 22, 23. So I wasn't ready. I thought I was. But looking back, I couldn't have done this the way I do it now. There wasn't a chance. So for me, it was really good advice. It wasn't pleasant advice. You know, it was tough advice to hear. But he was right.
1: What do you think that time as a magazine editor did for you or enabled you to do that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to pull off when you started to make that transition into psychotherapy?
0: People ask me that, well, what's the connection? And it's not a loose connection. It's a very strong connection because as a writer, you've got to have the ability to Depth out of someone else's story when you're interviewing them in order to tell their story. You've got to remove yourself so that you can fully hear them and fully take in their experience so that you're able to translate it onto paper. So there was so much training and listening and asking questions that lead to deeper and more information for me and removing myself from the equation. So that it can be their moment, not mine. That was really part of my training in becoming a therapist.
1: Can we also talk a little bit about the transition itself? Because we're talking about two at least seemingly different professions. Although I know you mentioned there's a very strong connection in the transferable skills that you developed. But can you just give a glimpse into what it was like to be working full time as an editor while also pursuing this new path of being trained and credentialed to become a psychotherapist?
0: Well, I was the senior editor. And so the managing editor who worked under me, he and I changed jobs, swapped jobs, so that he became the head of the magazine and I was the editor underneath of him. So I didn't have all that responsibility while I was going to graduate school, etc. cetera. And I think I did that for about a year. And then I went to school full time and I had a tremendous gift from my mother who supported me at that time so that I could go to school full time and finish it as quickly as possible because I was 38.
1: Is that considered kind of late?
0: I think for me, it felt late because I felt like a late bloomer and I wanted to be able to get right back into the job market, you know, as fast as I could. And I think a lot of people go back to school right from college into a graduate or PhD program.
1: Let's shift gears here then, Kessler. And let's talk about your entry into becoming a full-time psychotherapist. Coincidentally, it's not uncommon for me to cross paths with people who have been working in the corporate world, have realized that they would rather have a more people-focused Profession and they do start to consider things like psychotherapy or going into clinical psychology. How do you go from studying clinical psychology to then eventually working as a psychotherapist? Can you just explain what path you followed and how did you land in the practice that you landed in?
0: I found a practice I wanted to work in. I did my research and I identified a a local practice in my hometown where I wanted to work. And I called them and I said, You know, I'm about to graduate. I'd like to come talk to you about if you have any openings or, and the owner of the practice said, well, you're not fully licensed yet. I just can't take you on. Call me when you have your, you know, you're fully licensed. And I just didn't leave him alone. I hounded the poor man until he gave me a job. I just chased him until he's all right, enough, anything to get you to quit calling me. So I think it's about identifying where you wanna work and then just going for it.
1: And how do you go about finding patients? Do they come to you? Do you proactively, market's kind of a strong word here, but kind of promote or kind of drive visibility for your practice? How do you go about finding your clients or your patients?
0: When I first got out of grad school, I worked in a group practice and now I'm in private practice. So the marketing is very different. So in a group, they provide you with your clients a lot of times. And in private practice, it's solely up to me to go do my own marketing and find my own clients. And, you know, word of mouth is always has the most legs. It always is the best way to go.
1: And how was it for you as you were part of that group practice? Can you just give a sense of what your trajectory was there, how you were feeling about that, how that evolved for you?
0: Well, it was a great place to start. You know, it was a great place for me to really get my feet wet in the industry, to be around other therapists, to see how they work, to have people to talk to, other therapists to talk to, you know, when I had a break. And that's what I wanted in the beginning, was to have that kind of community to build my confidence in. But it wasn't long before I realized, like, what I really wanted to do was go into business for myself.
1: Was there something in particular that was kind of nagging you about being part of a group practice versus branching off on your own that was triggering you to think, hey, I need to go start my own practice?
0: Well, there are lots of problems when you get a bunch of therapists together.
1: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, how many jokes could we make up about that (laughs) one? But therapists have all kinds of different modalities they use right? There are tons of different ways to do therapy. And I had my own training compared to their training. You know, sometimes it clashes, sometimes it works. But for me, that was a little bit of a rub that we didn't have the same kinds of therapy we did. That becomes disagreement on how to do therapy and the best ways to do therapy. And you know, while you can learn from each other, it's nice to be around sort of more people are doing the same kind of therapy you're doing and also your schedule is not your own when you work in a group and neither is your rate you know it's set for you
1: so let's talk about your transition then going from part of a group practice to branching off on your own to start your own solo practice what was that like for you and maybe let's start off in the early days how did you think it was going to go and then how did it actually go
0: it makes me remember when I first found you online. I thought, if I'm going to go out on my own, I've got to have something that differentiates me from the other sea of therapists out there. So I found you online, and I have this memory of sneaking out of the office, going to sit in my car and having telephone, <laughs> these secret telephone <laughs> conversations <laughs> with you, I, with I my have boss.
1: Recollections of that today. also. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. But you helped me prepare for my exit, because you really helped me think through who I wanted to be in private practice. Yes, it was a business decision, but it was also very much of a philosophy I was building with your help of who I wanted to be, how I wanted to be known, and really thinking through all that. So I really thank you, by the way, that you gave me that education before I stepped out on my own. It made it very much less impulsive and much more deliberate.
1: That's great. To hear. I should probably say, just full disclosure, we have worked together professionally before. Where I guess, as you mentioned, when you were thinking about branching off on your own, you came to me and we talked a little bit about your branding and your positioning. And can you share a little bit about what was the best thing about branching off on your own and what was the most challenging just in the early days?
0: the scariest part was, oh my God, where am I going to get my clients from? Because they've kind of been fed to me. And my boss was very kind and said to me, you can, whomever you're seeing now, the clients we've given you now, you're welcome to take them with you if you'd like. So he was very generous in that way. But the nature of the therapy I do is short-term work. So it doesn't take many weeks or months for patients to sort of graduate, if you will, from their therapy, which means I need other clients to be right on the heels to fill the space. So yes, I could take my old clients with me, but where were the new ones going to come from? That was a real nail biter for me.
1: How do you go about finding the patients? It's kind of this ironic sort of system where if you're doing your job really well, I suppose, as a psychotherapist, it's the same thing in coaching your patient's not going to be your patient for very long because they're going to get better. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of need this pipeline of patients. And how do you go about doing that as a therapist?
0: It is feast or famine. In the five years I've been on my own, I still haven't been able to crack the code of why are some months great and others are crickets. And I don't mean crickets. I mean, maybe four, five, six, seven people as opposed to 20. And it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. And I don't know the rhyme or reason. And I've spent a lot of time, I think, driving myself crazy, trying to find the why. And I think a lesson there has been for me, it does come back and, you know, when it's slow, use that time to rest and just don't let the fear eat you up that it's not going to
1: come back. Yeah, that is an interesting point because one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Kessler, was about your life as a psychotherapist. And many people, they're probably coming to you at their most desperate moments, I'm imagining. They're coming to you, you're dealing with issues related to anxiety. So you're dealing with people who are struggling a lot with something. And when they see you, they're probably really needing some serious help. How do you maintain your own... Psychology and your own stability through it all? Because you mentioned having, let's say, 20 patients at any one given time. I would imagine that's somewhat emotionally and physically draining. Is that the case as a psychotherapist? Like, Do you feel the weight of the patients you're working with or do you just find a way to kind of separate yourself from that? I've always been really curious to hear about that straight from an actual psychotherapist.
0: That hasn't been a struggle for me. Because when you have hope for a patient, when they are highly invested in themselves and have the want, the will to meet their goals, I don't worry about them because they've already decided they're going to walk this road and they're going to get to what they want. I also I did some crisis work when I was um, in grad school as part of my. Grad school work. And that was very different. That was very draining for me because people didn't always have the will or the want to get better. The sympathy, you know, would just pour out of you. And that was draining. But that's a very different population. But I think as long as I see that a patient has the will, the want, the drive to, get to their therapy goals i'm energized by that
1: well before we talk about some of the lessons you've learned through your transitions i did also just want to ask you about what you have found to be the most surprising aspect of shifting from being part of a group practice to now being uh, someone who's running your own practice
0: I still have a community that I've created with other therapists around me and reached out and gotten to know them and have coffee and we meet for lunch. I can still have that community without having it in my office space. But something else I found very surprising is that we've got more than one gift in us. And it takes some courage to put your eyes on that other part of you, that other gift. Because sometimes it upsets the apple cart, right? Sometimes it can upset your life when you do that because it brings some change. But I do believe we all have more than one gift inside of us.
1: The last thing I was hoping I could talk with you about, Kesler, before we wrap up with what you're focused on right now in your practice is just a few questions about the things you've learned along the way of your very interesting career change journey. And I was hoping we could start... By getting a sense of if you had to give advice to your younger self, as it relates to making a major career change, what might that be?
0: Don't second guess your gut about timing and have the courage to listen to it. Because again, you might hear a no, and that might be hard to hear. But I think that no is designed to protect you. It's designed to keep that change, that direction you want to go. It's designed to keep it sacred. And it'll come. But just listen to your gut about the timing of it all.
1: I think sometimes we feel pressured to as quickly as possible, move on to that thing that we feel is really going to light us up and really going to energize us, but to be patient with it, I suppose, if you can be.
0: Yes, be patient with it and just question it.
1: When you look back on your career change, Kessler, what's something that you wish you had known that you now know?
0: I think don't let fear run the show. It can cause a lot of hesitation. It can cause a lot of wasted time. And... Just go for it. (laughs) If it's the right time, just do it. Life's too short to hesitate, to wait.
1: One more question for you here. Just having been through this career change, what's one thing that you have learned about yourself along the way?
0: Well, I was not a good student, okay? I have a little bit of a learning disability that was never identified. So I wasn't a great reader. Focusing was hard for me. I didn't come away with the experience that I was terribly bright. And I think when I finally found my thing in life, I realized that I might not have a terribly high IQ, but I do have a high EQ. (laughs) But that was just something that wasn't really valued by my family or at the time when I was growing up, I'm 53, by society either. I think it's got much more clout now than it did when I was younger but I got to see myself finally as smart capable bright gifted and that's not to toot my own horn it was just I could see myself in a different way but I'd always wanted to and I think finding your thing that you're really meant to do will bring that out for you
1: That's a really great point, Kessler, because I think sometimes when you're misplaced in the wrong profession, you can kind of mistakenly believe that you've got some issue and you're just not able to do the job as well as you could, or you're just not, there's something wrong with you because you're not feeling energized by it, but you could actually just be completely in the wrong role and just yeah, not making the most of who you are and what you're meant to do.
0: That's right. It's not a failure. It's a bad fit. You're not a failure.
1: Absolutely. It's like playing the wrong sport.
0: That's right. You just got to find the right fit. And that goes for relationships. It goes for careers. It goes for a pair of pants.
1: <laughs> no, <you laughs> yeah, gotta, right. You yeah. just have
0: to find the right fit.
1: <laughs> I'd love to wrap up, Kesler, with what you're focused on right now. And I know we've touched on this, but can you just explain a little bit more about the focus of your practice on anxiety and shame? and the kind of help that you're really excited about providing people that you work with?
0: I have been a student of the concept of shame since I was about 28 when I first heard the word. And I've really sort of built my life on first getting a hold of myself to be healed of my own shame. And then who knew that it was going to turn into what I'd be giving people for the rest of my life in turn. And there's one thing that every single person I've seen from the beginning of my career as a psychotherapist that people have in common is shame, some element of shame. And this has really been my focus is helping people come out of that and being able to forgive themselves and just break free of that cage of shame. That is always something in the works for me.
1: I can't let you go without actually asking you to maybe comment on this idea. Cause I, I know before we hopped on this conversation, you actually shared an article in the wall street journal with me that literally just came out before we recorded this and it came out in September, 2022. And it was called the next pandemic anxiety over life itself. And you can imagine there are people out there who are probably listening to this and maybe they're dealing with a lot of economic uncertainty because of the unreal levels of inflation that are hitting people right now. We've got the war in Ukraine. We've got a lot of economic volatility. We've still got the pandemic that's still on our hands. If somebody's listening to this and they're either struggling with anxiety or they are struggling with shame, I'm aware this is probably case by case basis. But do you have any broad suggestion on where people can start to at least make some strides in managing that anxiety or managing the kind of shame that they're feeling?
0: It's very hard to do on your own. I don't think we were meant to do it alone. I think these are the issues that we were meant to do in relationships with help because if you could do it alone you would have already remedied the situation right but i do think it's something we're meant to do through a relationship you know make sure that you've got a therapist who is trained in anxiety regulation because it is a grossly misunderstood issue i think not only in the therapy world but also in the medical world so you really want to have someone who is well trained in how to manage that
1: Speaking of which, if there is someone out there who's listening to this and wants to learn more about the topic of shame or anxiety, or find out more about the work you do as a psychotherapist for people struggling with these issues, where can they go?
0: Well, thank you for asking. Um, my website, which is my name Kessler Bickford B i c k f o r d dot com.
1: Well. We will be sure to capture that in the show notes. And I just wanted to thank you, Kessler, for well reconnecting with me, first of all, after all these years, telling us more about your life as a psychotherapist, your transition from a very different industry into the world of psychotherapy, and also just sharing some of your thoughts and insights on this topic of anxiety. So best of luck with your practice. And also just thank you for all the work you're doing to assist your patients and all the people out there struggling with the challenges they're facing right now.
0: Well, thank you, Joseph. It's been fun.
1: So I hope you enjoyed hearing Kessler's perspectives about how patience is so important when making a career change, why professional fit trumps all else, and what it takes to pursue your own unique interests. Now it's time to wrap up with today's mental fuel where I'm gonna describe times in my career when patience paid off and haste didn't. Before we get to today's Mental Fuel, I wanted to thank Brand Yourself for supporting this episode of Career Relaunch. Brand Yourself offers simple tools and services to help control what people find when they Google you. To clean up, protect, and improve how you look online, visit brandyourself.com and use promo code Relaunch to get 50% off a premium membership. This is the part of the show called Mental Fuel, where I finish the show with a brief personal story related to one of the topics we covered today and wrap up with a simple challenge to help you move forward with your own career goals. So for today's mental fuel, I wanted to pick up on something Kessler mentioned about waiting for the right moment before making a big move in your career. And this got me thinking about the tension between immediately pursuing your new career path once you've identified it, although you may feel a bit underprepared versus waiting until you feel more prepared, but then wondering if you're actually burning valuable time. So I thought I'd just share an example of when I erred on the side of moving more hastily and another example of when I moved more patiently during my career transitions. So first up, the slightly hastier move. One of the first jobs I held after college when I was in my early 20s was as a health policy analyst at a consulting firm in Washington, D.C., And about two years into that job, I started to feel the itch to go back to graduate school after dropping out of medical school a couple years prior. Now, for much of my life, I'd always assumed I'd do an advanced degree beyond a college degree. So it was never really a matter of whether to do it, but more of a question around which degree I would pursue. And pretty quickly... Especially after really enjoying the work I did on a big corporate rebranding initiative at that firm, I landed on the idea of doing an MBA. I'd actually already taken my GMAT before going to medical school because at the time I was already thinking about doing a dual MD MBA degree. So I applied right away. And after only three years of working at that consulting firm, I started my MBA thinking that I'd err on the side of going sooner rather than later. I was in my late 20s, excited about getting my life moving in a new direction after the fallout from medical school. And I figured why keep continuing to do work in the space of health policy if it didn't feel like my calling. So staying longer just kind of felt like I'd be burning valuable time. So off I went to the University of Michigan Ross School of Business, which was the only school I applied to. And looking back on it, Although I did have a really great couple years there, if I'm really honest with myself, I feel like an additional year of work experience may have served me well. In terms of years of work experience, I was definitely on the lower end of the spectrum in my class of 420 students. And I think if I'd just waited one more year, I would have come equipped with more practical business experience And I just feel like I would have been able to put some of the coursework into a more direct, clearer context. Now, in the end, it didn't derail me or hurt me in any material, noticeable way. But I also think it would have helped to perhaps wait one more year and get a bit more professional experience under my belt before heading there at the age of 27. Okay, so that's an example of perhaps moving a bit too quickly The other example I wanted to share was when I moved forward more patiently. While I was in business school, I pretty quickly decided I wanted to become a professional business coach one day. I didn't know exactly which domain of coaching, but the idea of helping others achieve their greatest potential really appealed to me. It seemed like the perfect blend of my long-held interest in human psychology combined with my newfound interest in business. But in connecting with a couple alumni about this idea of becoming a coach, similar to what Kessler experienced with her pastor, pretty much all of them discouraged me from pursuing this path right away. The clear message to me was that I was underqualified and I needed to get more functional business experience myself before I could be in a position to credibly coach others, which seems really obvious when I say it out loud right now. But at the time, my excitement in finally identifying my true career path kind of blinded me to the practicalities and realities of what it would take to get there in the most effective way. However, I did decide to take on their advice and spent the next seven years working in marketing before I eventually took the leap, which ended up being one of the best decisions I made for my career because those years of working in the corporate world directly shaped how I do my work now. But at the same time, my former career chapter in the corporate world was definitely less enjoyable compared to my current career chapter as a self-employed career consultant. Anyway, as you can see, there are always trade-offs when moving more quickly and moving more slowly. Maybe if I'd started business school a year later, I would have gotten more out of it. But who knows? As, as one of my former classmates in business school used to tell me whenever I went on one of my somewhat usual retrospective hypothetical what-if reflections on how my life could have been different... Maybe I would have gotten hit by a bus if I'd gone to business school later in my life. Who knows? However, in general, I have found that more patient, strategic moves in your career tend to pay off in the long run, even if they may feel a bit time-consuming or even painful in the short term. If you can bring yourself to take your time, and think of your career as a marathon instead of a sprint, you'll be a lot more effective once you do feel like you've done your time and can confidently make the leap into something new, fully equipped for the journey ahead. This takes me to a very well-known proverb my father used to remind me of frequently that I definitely feel applies to career changes. The more haste, the less speed. So my challenge to you is to identify one initiative, project, or move in your career that you feel really eager to get done right away. Take a moment right now and reflect on what's at stake and what would happen if you slowed down just a bit. Does it have to be done at this very moment? Or is it something that could wait, at least for a bit? What would that really cost you? And more importantly, how could slowing down actually benefit you and perhaps increase your ultimate chances of success. If you want to share your personal anecdote with me about something you feel really excited to do right now in your career but have decided to put off for just a bit longer I'd welcome you sharing your thoughts with me by sending me an email to Joseph at careerrelaunch.net or leaving me a voicemail at careerrelaunch.net/89 where you can also find a summary of my discussion with Kessler, learn more about her practice, and find a few articles about how to manage anxiety in the midst of all the uncertainty facing the world at this moment in time. Again, that's careerrelaunch.net slash Thanks so much for being a part of the career relaunch community. And a very special thanks again to Kessler Bickford for sharing her story with us today from Maryland. This episode was mixed by Liam McKenzie. Our music was curated by Jonathan rinaldi pohl and the Career Relaunch theme song was written and performed by Electrocardiogram. I'm Joseph Liu, and I'll talk to you next time.